And let's open our, our time in the Word with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your Word to hear you speak to us, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to speak, eyes to see your goodness through your Word. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, if you would. What would you think if you went to England on vacation and you decided while you were there in London, you're going to stop by and, and see a few shops. So as you're walking around the shops of, of London, you, you decide to stop in on this one particular shoe store, admiring all the shoes, ladies. And the owner of the shoe store hears your American accent and he decides he wants to show off a little bit to you. So he asks you how you like the, the shoes that he is selling, and he tells you that actually he manufactures all of these shoes himself. He doesn't import the shoes. He doesn't buy them in bulk. No, he has a factory actually set behind the shoe store where he has dozens of workers who are involved in every part of the shoe production, from designing the, the rubber outsoles to the to the cutting of the leather, to the stitching of all the different parts together. He's very proud of his shoe operation here in London, and he wants to show it to you. So you follow him through the door there in the, in the showroom, through a, a stock room in the back of the shop, and then out a small door in the back of the shop, which leads out to an alleyway. On the other side of the alleyway is indeed a large factory. You go in and the owner takes you up and down the rows filled with workers who are at various stages of the, the shoe production. A couple of workers kind of look like they're goofing off and so the owner hollers over them in a sharp tone, just soft enough to not offend you. Get back to work. At the end of the rows, you can see there are a few extra people gathered around one particular workbench. The owner kind of motions in that direction and tells you, oh yes, that's the bench of the, the King of England. King Charles is one of my employees, and most days he even does a halfway decent job. Then he turns around and looks at a couple others who are uh, not quite doing what they should be doing, and he yells out orders to them and you steal another glance back at that workbench, back in the back, and sure enough, you recognize it actually is His Highness the King. After you leave the factory and the, the workshop, your mind is just a confused mess trying to process everything that you just saw. What exactly is going on in there? How does any of this make any sense at all? How can a king be the employee of a grumpy, insignificant shoemaker in the middle of London. Kings don't make shoes, do they? You would be right to think that this is a rather strange situation. It really doesn't make sense. The authority and the sovereignty of a king just doesn't jive with the menial task of shoemaking. Kings sit in authority. They rule in sovereignty. They do not stitch and sew in a London sweatshop. This morning, we are once, once more turning to Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And we are going to see in this text the authority of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus sat down. 
Read with me Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here in the opening few verses, the author of Hebrews is introducing us to Jesus. And he does so by making two main points. First of all, God spoke. God was speaking in times past, in different times, and in diverse ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. That was what we saw two weeks ago now. But the second point, which we began last week, is that the Son sat down. So the Father spoke, and the Son sat Last week, we considered the first two of five truths concerning this sitting sun. We first saw that the sitting sun has authorial authority. He, ha- he is the God-man. And as God, He is the author of life. He is the, the creator of all things. As man, He is the king and the authority of your life. He is the divine Son of God, and He is the messianic Son of God. Not only does the sitting Son have authorial authority, but second, last week we saw that the sitting Son has a divine identity. The author of Hebrews elaborated on this truth that Jesus is the divine Son by explaining Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God and the very image of the nature of God. This morning, we're going to consider the final three truths of the sitting sun, which remind us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that we can compare him to. We love him. We honor him. We worship him this morning. We trust him. We obey him because he is better. Consider, first of all, the activity of of the sitting sun. This is the third point, the third truth that we see in this text, the activity of the sitting sun. The sitting sun is sitting, but what is he doing as he sits? Notice in the middle of verse 3 where we left off last week, he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. If you permit me, let me read this verse in the New King James Version. It kind of arranges things a little bit different. It'll be a little more clear what we're looking at here. The New King James Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, here we go, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You can see in that translation, that Jesus is described in three ways. First of all, Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's what we saw last week. That's who Jesus is. Second, who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And third, who is this Jesus? He is the Jesus who by himself has purged our sins. It is those second 
uh, things, second and third things that we're looking at right here in the activity of Jesus. What is Jesus doing as he sits? Jesus is the one who upholds all things and he is the one who has forgiven, purged our sins. Those are the things that Jesus does. This is the activity of the sitting son. So the author begins by telling us who Jesus is. He is God. He is the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of his person. And then in these two phrases, he tells us what Jesus does, the activity of the sitting son. Look with me at the first thing the author says Jesus does. He says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And last week we saw that the author, that the uh, the author of life is the one who created everything. Jesus is the one who created, God created everything through the Son. This is the point. Jesus is the author of all things. The Father created the world through the Son. Now, not only do we see that the Son is the author of all things, the creator of all things, the, the author of Hebrews continues by telling us that the Son sustains all all things. The moment-by-moment moment survival of our universe depends on the ongoing work of the sun to maintain this creation. You know, there's several theories out there about how time and space work together, how reality works. Uh, when I was in high school, the big sci-fi movie to hit the big screen was The Matrix. I'm dating myself, I'm sure. This is a movie that basically tells us that reality is all in our minds. This is the perfect postmodern script. We're all being controlled by computers and reality is actually in our heads. That idea certainly does not do justice to the reality that we see in Scripture. But it did make for a good story, at least I thought so. Nowadays, the idea of time and space that has captured our imagination, thanks to Marvel, is the idea of a multiverse, right? There's not just one universe, there are many interconnected universes, universe I, where alternate realities are all kind of playing out in real time. These ideas are not the first ones in the history of mankind to reckon with the question of reality. Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century American theologian, was a very deep and a very creative thinker. He wanted to give maximal glory to God. And he thought that when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, Jonathan Edwards thought that what is actually going on is an instant-by-instant instant recreation of all of reality. Now, without going into all the complexities of how that could work, the point is that Jonathan Edwards wanted us to appreciate just how deeply we are indebted to the sustaining work of the sun over the universe. Now, even though I think there are a lot of good reasons to believe Jonathan Edwards is not quite right in his theory of the universe, he is right to seek to give maximal credit to the glory of the sun in upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is in control. Jesus is sustaining the universe. Paul says in Colossians 1.17 that in him all things hold together. All things consist. Gravity is true. 
Gravity is true, but it is only true because gravity is a sign that points to a deeper reality of Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus, by His sovereign power, upholds all things. Now, can you imagine how much work that would take? How much work does it take? How hard would it be to uphold all things? I would imagine it would take an infinite amount of energy to uphold all things. And yet notice what the author of Hebrews says. He upholds all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine sustaining all things by the very word of your power? Now I know words are powerful. Uh, we try to convince our kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never. Words, words are powerful, but your words are not that powerful. Your words cannot sustain the universe. Imagine this. Jesus speaks, and it is sustained. No muscle, no effort, no strain. He's not going to pull a hammy tomorrow because he didn't stretch out enough before setting out to uphold the universe. He speaks. He sustains all things by the word of his power. Brothers and sisters, this is the Jesus that we are looking to this morning. The one who is sitting is Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power. This is what he is doing. His present divine activity is to uphold all things by his word. Now this, this places Jesus firmly in the category of God. This is something that only God can do. And since Jesus is doing it, that means Jesus must be God. Think about your life. Jesus is sustaining your life this morning. What's going on in your life? What's swirling around in the relationships in your life? God is sovereign. Jesus is upholding your life today. He's upholding the lives of the people around you today. God is in control of your circumstances, and that is good news. No matter how hard, no matter how out of control it feels to you at times this Jesus is in control and he is working these things for your good if he is speaking them in his word he is speaking them in his good word for you whom he loves Jesus is sustaining the world but the author of Hebrews also tells us about Jesus's uh, past priestly activity not only is he presently Active in sustaining the world, he, in the past, he, by himself, purged our sins, he says. In the ESV, after making purification for sins. Again, the author of Hebrews is giving us these three descriptions of Jesus. The first, which we saw last week, he is God. The express image of his glory, uh, Jesus is God. The second, we just saw He's doing God stuff. 
He's doing the things that only God can do. He upholds the universe. Now the author of Hebrews is shifting a little bit and he's saying that the Son has purged or made purification for our sins. Is it a God activity to make purification for sins? Is that a God kind of thing to do? What kind of a person normally makes purification for sins? Is that the job of a king? Is that the job of a prophet? Is that the job of a farmer? No, no, and more no, right? The one who makes purification for sins we call a priest. It is the job of a priest to make purification for sins. Later on in Hebrews chapter 9, the author is going to explain to us, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section in the tabernacle, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that's the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It is the job of a priest to offer sacrifices and make cleansing for sin. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that's what Jesus has done. The Son has done a priestly deed. He has made purification for sins. And so the author wants us to see right from the beginning of this book, or in his context as he's preaching the sermon, he wants us to hear right from the beginning of the message that Jesus is a priest. This is a main theme. In fact, this is the main theme in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is our high priest. And so right after the author explains that Jesus is God and Jesus is doing God-like things, he also explains that Jesus is a priest and he is doing a priestly thing. Jesus made purification for sins. Now there is so much more to say about the priestly work of Jesus, but we're going to get to it over the weeks and months and year or two to come. For now... It's enough to observe that the Jesus that we are considering, the Jesus that we see, is the Jesus who is God and priest, which must mean that he is God and man. And this brings us to the fourth truth of the sitting son. First, the sitting son has authorial authority. Second, the sitting son has a divine identity. Third, the sitting son is doing divine and priestly things. And now fourth, the sitting son is the Messiah. The last words of verse number three say this. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now here in our introduction, the author of Hebrews has just turned a very important corner. And he did it in a rather clever way. You see that the main idea of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is, for Christians, our great high priest. There are other things that come up here and there, but the main idea is the high priesthood of Jesus for the church. But this brings us to Psalm 110, which Jeff so kindly read for us this morning, because the book of Hebrews is 
essentially an expositional sermon, and the main text being preached on is Psalm 110. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, in our overview uh, sermon of the book of Hebrews. Let me read for you Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. The Lord said to my the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 introduces us to the Messiah. And the Messiah has two roles in Psalm 110. First of all, the Messiah is king. Second of all, the Messiah is priest. The Messiah is enthroned as king, and he is commissioned as priest. The two offices go together in the role of the Messiah. Now, notice what the author of Hebrews does. We just read, verse number three, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that sound familiar? Sit at my right hand, Psalm 110. He sat down at the right hand, Hebrews 1.3. What we saw a moment ago is in this third point, the son is engaged in a priestly activity. You remember that? After making purification for sins, the author of Hebrews writes, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see? You see what he's doing? The author is setting up for us to see that Jesus is the Messiah from Psalm 110. Jesus is both the king and priest promised in Psalm 110. Consider what it means that he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When kings sit down on their throne, normally they are sitting down on the throne of their kingdom and they're actually exercising their reign and their authority over their kingdom. Think again about the king of England. The king of England is King Charles III. He was coronated as king on May 6th of last year, but he actually became king the moment that his mother died on September 8th, 2022. So that means that when he sat down on his throne on May 6th last year as the crown king, he had actually actively been reigning over the United Kingdom and he had for a period of several months. He became king. And he was ruling as king, but he was officially coronated some eight months later. What we see in Psalm 110 is the exact opposite. Rather than ruling as king and then being officially coronated as king sometime later, what we have in Psalm 110 is the coronation of the king and then the king ruling sometime later. Listen again to the words of Psalm 110.1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Yahweh welcomes the Messiah to his right hand where the Messiah sits down. That's the coronation. But the son is going to have to wait until God defeats his enemies. Back in Psalm 110 and verse number 5, we read, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. In other words, right now the Messiah is at the right hand of God. But on the day of his wrath, on the day of the Lord, at the second coming, he will go forth and he will exercise his reign and his authority. He will establish his kingdom on that day. See what's happening here? When the Messiah sits down at the right hand of the Father, it's not as though he's actually beginning his ruling and reigning. He has been granted authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. As one person put it, Jesus is participating in the unique sovereignty of God over the world. But his active rule as the Messiah has not yet begun. Jesus is still waiting. And this is going to be a main point here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2. We're just going to have to wait for a couple months to get there. For now, here in the introduction, it's important to see this main idea. The Son has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think of it like this. The Messiah's throne which the Bible sometimes calls the throne of David, it is not like the throne of England. Although the king of England has claimed divine authority, it's not quite that easy. Also, just because the king of England is ruling on his throne doesn't mean he has any authority to rule over the United States, right? That's what 1776 was all about, I'm pretty sure. We are outside of the authority of the throne of England. But the Messiah of Israel is different. Yahweh, God Almighty, has said to the Messiah, sit here at my right hand. The Messiah is the king chosen by God. His authority does come right from God himself. Authority funnels down from God to the son of David. But God never meant for the authority of the Messiah to end at the border of Israel. God promised Abraham that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that promise, that blessing is not limited to the spiritual blessing of the gospel. God Almighty has authority over heavens and earth earth. He has authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And God Almighty is going to rule directly over the nations through the Messiah. That day is coming. The authority of God funnels down to the Messiah, the son of David, and then out over all the kingdoms of the earth. From the river to the ends of the earth, as the psalmist writes. Psalm 110.6 says that he will execute his judgment among the nations. What gives Jesus the right to do that? What gives Jesus the right to exercise his authority over the nations? The king of England does not judge the nations. He doesn't have that kind of authority. 
But the Messiah is greater than the King of England. The authority of the Messiah is not limited to Israel. The Messiah is the King of Israel. But the authority of Messiah extends over all the earth. The Messiah will actually exercise His authority. He will rule over the nations. But until that day, until that day, He is seated at the right hand of the Father in this position of authority and honor and glory, awaiting the day until, the text says, until when the Father defeats His enemies. That's the significance of the Messiah sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We are perfectly justified in saying that Jesus is sitting on His throne. It is right to say that He has been given all authority and glory and honor. And yet, Scripture teaches that just like there is an already, there is a not yet. Jesus has all authority, but He does not yet exercise that authority. He is sitting down awaiting his day is not yet reigning. There's a fifth truth about the sitting sun in the introduction. Again, just to recap, the first truth, the sitting sun has authorial authority. He created all things because he is God and he rules over thing, all things because he is the Messiah. Second truth, the sitting sun has a divine identity. He shares the very nature of God with the Father. The third truth is that the sitting Son is currently doing divine things and priestly things. The fourth truth is that the Messiah, the sitting Son, is the Messiah, it is in fulfillment of Psalm 110. And now we find the fifth truth here in verse number four. The fifth truth Jesus is greater than the angels. This is a comparison of the sitting sun. Having become as much great, as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better than the angels. Just to quickly point out, as the author of Hebrews has said, the sun became as much superior to the angels. That word superior, sometimes here in the book of Hebrews, that is a word that's translated better. In fact, it's translated better many, many, many times in the book of Hebrews. This is one of the author's favorite descriptions for Jesus. Jesus is better. The author of Hebrews is going to tell us that we now have a better hope because of the work of Jesus in 7.19. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant in 7.22. This better covenant that Jesus mediates is enacted on better promises in chapter 8 and verse number 6. Jesus cleanses the heavenly temple with better sacrifices than the sacrifices of the Levites in chapter 9 and verse 23. Because of Jesus, we now have a better possession than the earthly things that you call your own, according to chapter 10 and verse 34. The patriarchs were looking forward to a better country that Jesus had promised them, according to 11.16. Martyrs suffered great suffering and persecution and death so that they might rise to a better life, according to 11.35. God provided something better for the church as well, according to 11.40. And the sacrifice of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is better. This is a major point of the author of Hebrews. 
But we begin, we begin with Jesus as better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. Now this may seem a little odd to us. Why is Jesus better than angels? Why is this even a thing, right? Why is this a comparison? Well, the Jews understood the angels to have had an important role in the religious life of Israel, including the, the Jews understood the angels to somehow be serving as mediators or somehow involved in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So you may remember in the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Stephen uh, accuses the religious leaders in this way. Uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the angels delivered the law to Moses. That's the picture that we're getting from Stephen here. It's interesting because Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 19. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now listen to this. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the Jews believed that angels had had like this important role in the giving of the law. Not that the law started with the angels, but that somehow the angels were mediating the law to, to Moses. Angels seem to be great, mighty creatures in God's creation. And the, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand very clearly Jesus is greater than the angels because he has inherited a name that is more excellent than the name of the angels. In other words, to be son of God is way cooler than being an angel. To be son of God is better than being an angel. Now, we have to leave that thought right there because that's the idea that he's going to unpack through the rest of chapter 1. And so we're going to come back to that idea next week. For now, we take the author of Hebrews at his word that Jesus is, in fact, greater than the angels. Listen again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you hear how truly great and exalted your Jesus is? Jesus is truly God and truly man. He has the authority of God himself, the highest authority in the universe. He has the authority of the Messiah, the highest human authority imaginable. We think of the President of the United States as the most powerful man in the world. And that may be true for right now. But the Jesus we see, the Jesus that we believe in, is very God and very man. He has all the authority of God. And he has all the authority that a man can have. 
the author of Hebrews is describing the great and the glorious Jesus for us in a profound and eloquent way because he wants this vision of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus to fundamentally change the way that we live our lives, the way that we approach our sufferings and our temptations in our lives. This is not simply an academic study into the doctrine of Jesus. The way that you see Jesus, who you believe Jesus to be, affects the way that you handle the suffering and the sorrow that you are going through tomorrow. How does Jesus use this authority? Well, he made purification for your sins, for one thing. Do you believe that? Do you see the goodness of Jesus that he would serve as your great high priest? This is not something you deserve. This is what he does out of the goodness of his heart because he loves you. Brothers and sisters, we stand in awe this morning before a Jesus who is not only God himself, but is also a man. And as man, he is both king and priest. He is your king. He is the sovereign over your life permitting and not permitting whatever comes or does not come into your life. He is your priest who has made provision for your sins and intercedes on your behalf. We must respect, fear, and submit to Jesus, our King and our priest. We must not abuse or treat with contempt his priestly sacrifice or his intercession for us. He is better, and he deserves our best. Father, I